When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, I'm Alan Davis. Welcome to Seven Pillars. Uh, This is the podcast in which we find a a special guest and we go through the seven most influential things in their life, chosen from all the different uh, cultural genres, if you like, film, book, performance. We ask them for a special memory or a place that means something to them. Places or things or items or experiences that have been formative and influential in their lives. And my guest this week, I'm actually delighted to say, uh, it's uh, Darren Harriet. Uh, Darren is a, a brilliant comedian from the Black Country, and uh, a full disclosure, I've been working with him recently on a show with Comedy Central, and uh, we actually got along quite well, despite my general antisocial attitude. So, Darren, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, buddy. How are you? <laughs> nice to see you. Darren is a, a, a wonderful stand-up comedian. You can see all kinds of his stuff. Online, but we're here today to talk about the things that have been influential in Darren's life, and we're going to start off with the film that you've chosen, Darren, which is uh, "Do the Right Thing" by Spike Lee. It's probably the first film I remember that my whole family still quotes. Like I remember my family quoting that when I was a kid, and they still quote it now. And I've never <laughs> seen, and if uh, uh, and if you watch the film, it's not. It's not the best film in terms of uh, political correctness and quotes, <laughs> but um, my family just loved it. It was it's so powerful, and I've I watched it very recently. I watched it two weeks ago, and I had my um, my cousin. My cousin was staying with me. Uh, she's uh, twenty one, and she'd never seen the film. And I put the film on, and I remember saying to her, "I said, you're going to hear some things in this film that you've heard my mum." Your mum, our uncles quote a lot. Yeah, and, and I put it on and she was like, my mum t- says that to me. And it, it's such a, honestly, it's such a beautiful, beautiful film. And it, it's, it, there's so much to it, you know. There's, there's uh, obviously there's the big sort of racial aspect. There's, there's love, there's poverty, there's gentrification. I never heard people talking about gentrification and, you know, I don't know. I, I, you know, I was born in 1988. The film, if I, if I'm correct, came out around 19. I think it was 87. So I think it was 89. I'm well, and maybe it was that was here, but yeah, 80, it was yeah. At, certainly around the time you were born. Uh, for the, for um, any listeners who uh, haven't seen it, do do give it a go. But it's all set in this one block, really, isn't it, in Brooklyn, an yeah. area which has been. Is now an, almost an entirely black community, but in the centre of this block is a pizzeria run by Italian Americans that's been there for twenty five years, and so you get this real kind of racial melting pot. I really like the Korean uh, convenience store across the street as well, <laughs> and the only white people you see really are the cops. And yes. it's a long hot day in this block, a very very hot day. Uh, there's a great scene with a fire hydrant opened up, and it ends after dark with a quite an explosive 
ending, and it's very difficult, really. Uh, it's quite clever, Spike Lee, quite a young man when he made it, but he didn't really take a point of view as far as in terms of who was right or wrong. That's why it's quite interesting that it's called Do the Right Thing. Yeah, yeah, he really does. Um, oh, what really sort of stuck with me is um, just watching it now as like a like a proper adult, especially in today's sort of climate. It's just just how powerful the words are, the, the the things that people say, the dynamic, the setting, the music, the fact that there's like constant trumpets in the background, how bright it all is. A lot of the art on the walls, they really just stick out to you. There's, you know, um, the, uh, 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 the one character, I think his name was uh, Smiley, who has the, the picture of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and he's just going around constantly trying to get people to buy these pictures of him and, and you know, what happens to him at the end of the film and, and, and how he changes. And it's just so beautiful. I've, I've just never seen a film like that where it felt like a play. It just feels like a play. Every character has a, a, like a, a straight to camera monologue. And sometimes it's, you know, to further the actual, uh, the, the actual film. And sometimes I just feel like Spike just wanted to get this out. He just wanted to have each race say really horrific racist things about somebody else in the neighbourhood, but they all get along. They all rub along, don't they? And there's some great yeah. humour in it too. I really particularly like the three older guys who sit on deck chairs all day in front of that bright red wall. <laughs> and they're talking about, I remember Mike, they're in that bit where they're going, I remember Mike Tyson. I remember when he mugged someone on that corner over there. <laughs> <laughs> if Mike Tyson even dreamed of whipping me, he better wake up and apologise. I remember people saying that to one another at the time. You're absolutely right. It's a very quotable film. Can you remember in particular any of the lines that you really liked? The one that my auntie and my uncle would quote all the time is that scene when uh, you talk, spoke about it where uh, the guy... Uh, his name's Frank Vincent. He's driving his car, that low top, and they're they're squirting water, they're firing water out of like the hose or whatever. Oh and, yes, um, he's got the soft top down. He's got the soft top down, and he's <laughs> he's specifically saying, "Don't you dare, don't you dare spray that water." And they're like, "We're not going to spray any water. Don't worry, dude." And he goes in, and he gets covered. And uh, it's the part when um uh, it, it goes to the uh, the police, and the police are like, "Because this is the first time we get." to see the, the police, like, properly. And uh, he goes, oh, the police officer's like, who did it? And he goes, just arrest them. And he goes, who did it? What were their names? And he goes, Mo and Joe. <laughs> and the police go, Mo and Joe who? He goes, Mo and Joe Black. <laughs> My auntie quotes that to this day all the time. It's that so crazy. I can't remember the actor's name, He's a big Italian-American actor, isn't he? And he plays a yeah. very dangerous thug in uh, Violent Criminal in Goodfellas. So he's very well known. There's a feeling that he's a throwback from the area and the idea that he'd not that he'd have to turn around and not drive down that street. <laughs> but they drench him. They absolutely drench him. He's such a good actor. Yeah, his name's uh, Frank Vincent. He played Billy Bats in Goodfellas. Sick. I'm obsessed with Goodfellas. He's the guy who gets uh, stamped on. And uh, and it's, it's the downfall of Tommy because he stamps on the maid guy in the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good. And the part when he goes, um, it goes to the police. I want him locked under the fucking jail. Oh, <laughs> crazy! <laughs> my auntie would say that to my cousin if she like did something wrong. <laughs> She'd go, I want you locked under the fucking jail. <laughs> and my cousin was like, my mom used to say that all the time. <laughs> Thank you.
gonna be a scorcher today. Universal Pictures presents a new film from Spike Lee. Good morning, Miss Mother's sister. Now, Mookie, don't work too hard today. The man says it's going to be hot as the devil. I've been here 25 years. LaSalle's famous pizzeria is here to stay. Trust me. Mookie, the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. I know you can't stand it. You can't stand it. Hey, hey, Sal, I'm going to burn up on the wall here. You want brothers on the wall? Love. Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. What I tell you about that noise? What I tell you about them pictures? You talk some brother talk to him. You the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. The first time you turn your back, boom. Ah! Right here, man, in the back. Y'all take a chill. You like to sign a petition to boycott Sal's famous pizzeria? Hear me, what you ought to do is boycott that no good barber that messed up your head. And that's the double truth. You know, deep down inside, I think you wish you were black. <laughs> Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? I can't even hear myself think! From Spike Lee. Director of School Days, and she's gotta have it. Good people, please! If we don't stop this and stop it now, we're gonna do something we're gonna regret for the rest of our lives. Doctor, come on, what? What? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. The thing I remember about it, oddly, I don't remember, it's difficult to know whether we should avoid spoilers or not for a film that's 30 years old, but there is a a shocking climax to the film uh, where somebody gets killed and and it's so uh, relevant today with the Black Lives Matter campaign, it's 30 years later, that I, I... I hadn't really remembered how dreadfully shocking it was until I rewatched it last night. The thing that I always remember is that it's Mookie, Spike Lee's character, who starts what becomes a riot, and that's quite unexpected. Um, he was a kind of cast himself as a kind of an anti-hero, really, didn't he? Yeah, you because at the beginning you sort of see him. He's working at the the pizzeria. Um, you know, he's okay with Sal. He's okay with one of the brothers, but the other brother is just. And I've met, I, I know guys who are like that, who are, who are like really racist. They say racist things, they have racist thoughts, but their football heroes are all black and whatnot. And so he is kind of like their, almost like a little bit of like an enforcer. Whenever there's issues with, little, with black people in the area at sales, he will tell Mookie to go and, you know, get them out like he does with Bugging Out when he starts kicking off about the pictures. He gets him to do all of this. And there is a part where... You can see in his character where he's unsure as to what to do because he he feels a bit like a sellout, but also he just wants to get paid. He just wants to he just wants to keep his job. He doesn't want to get involved in what happens. And I think at the end, um, uh, with what happens with with Radio Rahim, he just realizes right that's it. I, I guess do the right thing, you know, just just burn it all down. Burn it all down, and then goes back and asks for his money the next day. <laughs> Oh, it's the chief, the nerve of him. <laughs> yeah. 
The nerve. I've been fired from jobs for uh, attempted theft. That would be like me going back and just going, hey, can I can I just get paid for salary? And the actual, the real anthem of the film around that time was when Public Enemies Fight the Power came out and Radio Rahim goes around and around the block with his huge, great boombox playing Fight the Power throughout the film. It goes right, you can't get it out of your head, can you? The image of it, the image of him, those streets, that song... It really takes you right into the heart of what they call Bed Stuy, that corner in, in Brooklyn, yeah. even though I've never been there. When I when I first saw that, I was like, What is this? There's this guy, he's got love, hate, like knuckle duster rings on each hand. He's got a giant <laughs> boombox ghetto blaster, and he just keeps playing the same song constantly in the neighborhood, and he's walking around. And what I really loved about his his character so much was that he clearly had some rep in the area. He was clearly the guy you don't mess with. Everybody respects him. Every time he walks down the street, somebody's yelling, Radio Rahim, he puts his fist up. He explains to Mookie, you know, uh, if I love you, I really love you. If I hate you, and he, he does his little monologue to camera. It's so, so good. And then we start getting a bit of personality from him, which they... He, he did this really well. We, we got, like with the police officers, we started to get more and more personality as it, as it went on because there's quite a few characters at the beginning you don't really get anything from. And Radio Rahim is one. And probably my, um, my second favourite scene in the film, uh, it's a very, very close second, is the scene where Radio Rahim is obviously just walking around, playing his music. And then he walks in uh, uh, and he sees a, a bunch of like Latino guys all playing their music and they're playing sort of like... Oh, yes, yeah, so and they music. start turning the volume up. They turn the volume up and they look at him like, yeah, you can't compete with this. And then really <laughs> puts his ghetto blaster down, turns it up on full... He outblasts his music so much, the guy just turns his back down, looks at Radio Rahim and goes, you got it, bro. But <laughs> <laughs> well, then as he walks away, he punches the air, doesn't he? And he has a little he has a little black kid with him and they high-five. But I also love the scene where, where Radio Rahim goes into the Korean grocers to get new batteries. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just well, yelling at one another. And he go uh, that that scene when Randy Rahim walks off and punches his fist in the air. I I can't love that scene enough because we see his personality and how much it means to him to be this like ghetto blaster king. And then the little kid, the little black kid that runs up to him and they high five. I love that. I'm tr- honestly, I want to get that image uh, into a poster because I, I love it so much. And yeah, when he walks into the uh, the Korean restaurant. And he goes, what's the date on them? Everyone's so rude. That's what I... <laughs> so I everyone's so rude. He goes, what's the date on those motherfuckers? It's like... <laughs> and, then, and then the Korean guy goes, matcha. And he goes, matcha? It's March, motherfucker. <laughs> it blows my mind. Just, and that's that's another thing that my aunties and uncles would quote that. And when he goes, D, motherfucker, D. All the time. They just, they're obsessed with it. What about the radio DJ who's got this kind of cool 70s soul vibe going on? It kind of bridges the gap almost between the old style soul music and taking it easy and we love radio FM and he's broadcasting all the time looking out onto the street and the contrast between 
the atmosphere that he gives out and the fight the power and the general tensions out on the street. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I, I think that was the first time I'd seen Samuel L. Jackson in a film, I think. Um, yeah, because he's, he's the, the radio guy, the guy at the beginning with a little hat on. And what, another thing that I just, I just loved about this film, there's certain scenes where, um, and you don't really see this very often, and it really shows how they, they wanted everything to be on this Brooklyn street, where you will see... Uh, Mookie and somebody else having a chat and in the background the DJ's there and you'd see the DJ with his hands waving in the air obviously doing a broadcast there's another scene where you get uh, you get Smiley with his cards behind it, it just made it seem as if everybody was so close-knit it was, it was so good it's fascinating isn't it it really is as you say it does feel like something you could set up on stage it feels like something you could do as a play quite because it is all set on this corner yeah, I I I, saw, I could see it all as a as a as a play, and just, just the growing personalities. Like when we first see the police officers uh, with the the Frank Vincent character with his car, where you you start thinking, oh, he's on the side of the the kids, the the, the street boys and girls, because he kind of tells the guy just to get lost, and you're like, oh, hello. The police officers aren't too bad, <laughs> and then it slowly they slowly just get a little bit worse, and things sort of heat up. I think the third act is just there's just so much tension. I mean, you've had uh, the character bugging out, who obviously is, do you know that's Giancarlo Esposito? Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it when I found that out. I, found, I must have found out a few years ago, and I went, "No way! That's the guy from Breaking Bad." <laughs> That's my favourite line in the film, where he tries to organise a boycott of Sal's, Sal's <laughs> famous pizzeria. As he calls, he keeps saying, "We're going to boycott Sal's famous." I'm organising the boycott of Sal's famous, and one of those guys goes to him, "You should boycott the barber who did that to your head." <laughs> <laughs> that is Very such funny. a good line. Yeah, I. He's probably my. He was probably my favourite, like secondary act to that guy. Uh, his name's Robin, Robin Harris, because if you ever, if you watch his scenes, you can tell that he was just making all the crew laugh because out of all of the characters, he's the only one who in between bits keeps looking over past the camera. You can tell that he was looking at the crew because right. he was just freestyling and being so funny with it. I I love those three as well. They felt like stand-up comedians, didn't they? Yes, yeah. You had You had three different levels of sort of, like I'd say, like black empowerment. You had the one guy with the bucket hat who who just hated the Koreans. He was just so jealous that the <laughs> Koreans. He's like, they come here and they start a business. What are they doing? And you had the other guy who was an immigrant who was a little bit more. He was a little bit more sort of relaxed about it. He was like, oh, just leave them alone. We need to sort our stuff out. And then you had the guy in the middle who was just like, I don't care. I'm gonna give them all my money because they're here. <laughs> it was just, it was just such a nice contrast. Yeah, it's it's and it, it's amazing how it stands up. It really is. Um, it's if you haven't seen it, see it, watch it, do the right thing. The Spike New Movie. If you have seen it, see it, see it again. It stands up well, and there are things in it that you kind of forget. So that's a great that's a great opening choice, Darren. Thank you for that. Let's oh, no. move on to your book choice. Uh, we ask our guests to come up with a book or a passage from a book or a poem or a piece of writing, and uh, you've come up with a piece. The title of which is Why It Is Important for Young Black Men to Floss, brackets, not their teeth. 
by Suli Brakes. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, so this uh, this is from a collection of essays in a book called Safe. It's um, basically, it's, it's 20 ways to be a, a modern black man in Britain. And it's just talking to a load of sort of influential uh, black people in various, you know, Sully Brakes is a poet. You've got sort of actors and designers and whatnot in there. And they're all just talking about what it's like to be... Um, uh, black in Britain today and there's some really cool stories and I really liked so what it was this was the first essay I saw that got me to buy the book and it really spoke to me because I always knew that growing up as a poor black kid the most important thing was to look good was to have the right clothing the right trainers the right hat didn't even necessarily mean it had to be expensive it wasn't even always about expensive because I remember, for example, in school, when I was in school, I was in high school from the year 2000 to 2005. There was a, a certain type of shoe that was really expensive. They were called Rockports, and they cost about £220. Now, there's no way we could get £220 Rockports. But what came out was a, a shoe that are still out today. They're called Wallabies. They're um, made by Clarks. They were 20 quid. And what happened was... Every kid in the area threw away their rockports and got wallabies. And I was like, oh, I'm in. <laughs> off, off. It was like finding a cheat code. And <laughs> what it did was it just, it made, it, it was like a, almost like a uniform. And he talks about this in the essay, how uh, flossing is to look good uh, in terms of how you dress and what you wear and to try and be in style. It's not an arrogant thing. It's more that because we we essentially grew up on, like myself, grew up on council estates, didn't really have a lot of money. We knew that what, even though we didn't have it in our houses, if we could just try and like look good on the outside, you would get treated better. You would get respected by people better. It's and I had no idea. I had no idea about this. I always knew there was something something to it. This sort of almost like a a uniform and, a, and an acceptance. But I didn't even realize it as much with like sort of adults. And he talks about it in this essay that, you know, there's his aunties and his, his, his grandma would dress up and they would look like, you know, like delegates, <laughs> like prime ministers. <laughs> I love that they bit in the essay. It's yeah. Good. He and, opens the essay with a definition of floss, uh, which says one, clean between one's teeth with dental floss or two, as an, uh, an American informal, behave in a flamboyant manner or show off. Although that's kind of the definition given, it, it turns out what it really means is try and have some kind of pride in having good clothes, good shoes, uh, particularly not wearing the same thing more than once if you can help it, about giving off an impression, as you say, of having money, having having more than you actually have. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, exactly. You get the respect amongst your friends, the people in your area, um, you feel better in yourselves because um, the, the problem is is that obviously you've got loads of uh, he talks about this as well you've got like loads of rappers as well who obviously they take it to the umph degree but a lot of the all the rappers have come from the exact same sort of council estate places as, as us and they automatically have that mentality it's that because we don't have much at home we need to make sure that we look good when we go out it, it ultimately just comes to almost like a pride thing that there's like um there's this there's this really big pride 
outdoors because we know that we don't have that much. So if we can just take what we have and try to make the best for ourselves on the outside, we'll be treated better. I mean, I grew up in the era in Birmingham where it was, there was lots of like violence and gang violence and whatnot. And uh, people would, uh, you could get rubbed or, or beaten up or worse for your trainers, whether it was um, your trainers being stepped on like a bugging in a do the right thing, or you could get rubbed for it. But I, I knew that when I was growing up that you would be judged by others in the area. It's uh, a nice bit. I'll read you the little bit right at the beginning where he says, I can guarantee you that at this precise moment, there is a child in a council estate somewhere in London, face contorted in focus, fingers and hand worn from effort and determination. He's hunched over on a mattress that squeaks desperately under the weight of his abrupt movements. In one hand, he has a toothbrush, holding it the same way a sculptor holds a chisel or a builder a hammer. And in the other hand, one shoe of a pair. The shoe is more than likely branded by one of the top three labels that have dominated youth cultures since the early 80s. Nike, Adidas or Reebok with the toothbrush he is scrubbing meticulously. And then he says, scrub, dip, scrub, dip, scrub, dip. This rhythm has almost become the soundtrack for the young black male experience. And I find that's such a nice bit of writing. It certainly breaks his... Uh, I mean, he's a poet, isn't he? But uh, yeah. it's not just poetry he does. It's supposed to be a lot of spoken word. He's done yeah. a great deal of stuff on videos on YouTube that have had in millions of downloads. But his, uh, I think his writing in this essay is really quite impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Um, and that was me. That was me with the, the toothbrush uh, for school. I remember any time I'd have a toothbrush that was worn out and my mum would say, throw it away, I couldn't throw it away. I'd have to leave it. I Sometimes I'd put it in my shoe to remind me to scrub it. Um, there's just so many really good lines that really spoke to me. Like there's one at the bottom of uh, page 13 where it says, Young black men have learned to use flossing as a means to navigate an environment within which they are given very few tools or options to create an identity and establish their self-worth. And it's just things like mm -hmm. that that you just go, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it now. Because it was just such a thing that we all, we all did and we all knew to do um, immediately. And even now, as I'm older... Well, I do remember when we were recording Guessable for Comedy Central, we recorded eight programmes and you had eight spectacular box fresh <laughs> footwear choices. <laughs> and uh, and I, I thought that was impressive. <laughs> thank, thank you. I see, I'm, not, I'm nowhere near as bad as I would have been back then. <laughs> But there is really something, that line is really astute of his, it's really perspicacious, that they're given very few tools or options to create an identity. Uh, it's, a, it's a significant thing, it's hard to, to understand, it's good to have you on because it's very hard. Yeah, I think, I think what happened is a lot of people, due to sort of rap music and how, you know, braggadocious they are, I think people see it as uh, ego. And, you know, you just think you're better than everybody else and you're just showing off when there is, there is at times a deeper, a real deeper meaning to it. And even if they had, you know, none of the money that they would have, they would still try on some, on some level to look like that out on the street. Um, it, I mean, I remember when I was a, I was a kid, I mean, I I think I have that in me because I know how much my mom would struggle when I was growing up. I remember she would use uh, a catalogue and, you you know, you pay like a weekly payments on clothing for me and my brother just because she just, she knew. My mom didn't care. 
like my mom honestly was did not care but she just knew how important it was to us especially when you go to school and you hang out with your friends and she was like I think she got herself into debt just trying to get us you know a hundred pound coat for school which was like crazy back then and yeah, I always really yeah. appreciated that and it, I've took that with me as well I've got that I've got that sort of uh, mind frame with me where like even now, because I remember seeing how much my mom would struggle with them, like paying things on like a monthly basis is like the scariest thing to me or weekly. I'm just not, I avoid it. What's your view of, a, of these big companies uh, marketing two young kids who don't have the income to buy the stuff and then creating demand and making kids really want things that they can't afford and fighting over them? It's, it's, there's something quite dark about it, don't you think? Yeah, I definitely think so, especially when they use uh, celebrity endorsements because they know that certain celebrities... It's like when uh, Nike at the moment, they've got Colin Kaepernick in their whole Mm -hmm. uh, advertisements, and it's like, yeah, they know that their their audience love Colin Kaepernick, especially for black people, especially young black males, love Colin Kaepernick. But what they will do is they will hike up a lot of their prices for his clothing. I mean, who who really can afford £50 for a T-shirt when you're like a 13, 14-year-old boy? Uh, but they know that their their target audience is that, so they can raise it up, and then you know you get kids trying to you know kill themselves for bloody trainers uh, and all this, and yeah, it's 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 pretty bad. But they they know what they're doing. You can't you can't beat them. Well, that's it. And uh, full disclosure for our podcast is that our editor Michael Marden is the editor of the of a new film that's out at the moment called One Man in His Shoes, which is about. Um, about Air Jordans and Nike and about the consequences of that marketing campaign, which, as you say, led to people, some kids getting actually killed over this stuff. I, yeah. um, I do. I, there is, it's a shame in a way that uh, there is such a thing as labels. It would be nice if it was illegal to have a label on it. But It'd be all right, wouldn't it? Just everybody <laughs> just wearing no labels. Oh, it'd be so nice. <laughs> just for a day. No label day. <laughs> I wish I could. Ma- I wish I could make my own clothing. I wish I. I wish I just knew how to do that and had the time. Somebody uh, uh, knitted me a, a jumper, like a friend. And I said I don't have any sort of long sleeve like jumpers, and they they knitted me one. And it took them about a month, and it's like the best jumper I've ever had. But I just don't. I just can't keep wearing it because I don't want to. I don't want to wreck it. I don't want to ruin it. Well, it's not too late, Darren, for you to for you to knit. I've seen those delicate fingers. well that's a great bit of writing Uh, thank you for sharing that with us Um, Why Black Men Go to Floss by Suli Brakes Uh, let's move on to your favourite food what is the favourite the food that is a cornerstone or a pillar of your life that you go back to time and again oh mate this is a real uh, black ethnic edition of Seven Pillars I tell you that mate Uh, (laughs) My my food is um, so I'm gonna go with Caribbean food, in particular Jamaican food. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's my favorite food ever. I love it. It's so bad. There's a reason why a lot of black people die from like heart disease quite early because it's so <laughs> it's so greasy. It's it's just I mean any any sort of uh, food where fr- deep fried dumplings is the norm is probably going to be a problem overall. Um, it, it's that happiest food to me. It just makes me it makes me so happy. I have so many memories, uh, family memories, and ever you know, it's it's so strange because um, so uh, my girlfriend at the moment is white. Um, I know, I know, and. Uh, <laughs> 
she is very unfamiliar with Jamaican food. Well, how does she cope then with the extraordinary uh, quantity of chilli you like to put? I mean, the, the hot sauces. My rule, right, <laughs> is that I'm, I may have Jamaican heritage and whatnot, but, mate, I am British, right? <laughs> I think that HP sauce is quite tangy. <laughs> <laughs> how many chilies is this daddy's sauce? Um <laughs> I tell you, right, I do not do um, Jamaican food at, like, carnivals uh, because it's too spicy. Jerk sauce, like, proper jerk sauce is so hot. It's it's just because, you know, when you just have it, it's just unfun. You're like, am I, am I doing an yeah. eating challenge? Like, what? Like, anytime there's a guy, if there's a guy with dreadlocks, with jerk chicken in a drum, selling it on the street, it will burn your eyes out of your head. <laughs> I can't do that. That's not me. My my nan was the, the the lead the lead cook, and you know. So like for example, Christmas. Christmas for me, Christmas is you you you. Christmas morning is there's there's dumplings, there's ackee, there's there's this thing called ackee, there's saltfish, there's plantains, and then Christmas dinner was always uh, Jamaican inspired with. English. So we'd always have typical English, you know, uh, sprouts and a turkey and you know, cranberry, all that. But then there'd be rice and peas, there'd be chicken, there'd be mutton. Um, there'd also be some like some samosas in there. I mean, what, what I'm saying is we all just like to get really fat like everybody else. <laughs> but there's just there's like four pots with four different meats in. And that's not even the turkey. And it's just in, it just becomes a bit insane but um i honestly love it i love the colors i don't know how to cook it i buy it and uh so is it is it a kind of a thing where the meal goes on for a long time that there's food on the go people are getting up leaving the table or are you round that table as one for a a feast with everyone sharing from the same pots what's it like when the actual meal time comes around i mean we try to get people round the table <laughs> Um, you know what it's like Christmas Day? There's always one person with a mountain on their plate. They started early. Right. And then there's fritters, so there's somebody in there. And I, you know, Christmas Day, I am, you know, piggy, 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 piggy. I I just, I don't stop eating. I don't stop eating or drinking because by the time everyone's eating around the table, I'm usually on my second or third. That's it. Everybody comes at different times. People, um, people will try and come up Christmas Eve and bring stuff. It's the thing is, we try and take the load off my nan because my nan she loves cooking it all. But you know, she, there's a lot of there's a lot of food to be cooking, man. Is she the kind of a uh, old school uh, Caribbean matriarch? Your nan is she the one that everyone gravitates towards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My nan really is. She's she is like the the, the binder that keeps us all in together. Yeah, I'm starting to think it might be mainly due to the cooking because. <laughs> Well, that's how they roll. That's how they do it. That's how they lure you back. You literally, yeah, you can never, you can never leave a Jamaican woman. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> but none of my nan's kids uh, learned how to cook Jamaican food, so they have all just been relied on my nan. And I'm, I'm even worse. So I will, I will um, uh, buy it. But I, one thing I miss living in London is I just miss every Sunday at my nan. So I look at the general English roast dinner. And I go, this is bland <laughs> because I never had it. So I never had it. My nan might, somebody might make it like on a Tuesday, but it was never a Sunday thing. So like for me, a Sunday dinner is like, you know, rice and peas and chicken and whatnot. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's a bit of a different thing. The Sunday roast is not. Yeah, God, the Sunday roast. That was the only thing that you could t- taste of anything was the gravy. That's all. That, that's what gets me about Sunday <laughs> roast. I'm like, listen, I like meat. I like Yorkshire puddings. I like the. I like everything about it. But when you just cover something in gravy, all you're saying is this all needs gravy. <laughs> but yeah, exactly I look at that. Yeah, but. For us, it, I'd if someone if I was to have a, a typical English Sunday roast on a Sunday, it would feel so weird to me. It would be like it would be like somebody having a pizza for their Sunday dinner. I'd be like, this is just such a strange thing. See if this rings a bell to you, Darren. Yeah. So when I grew, up, I grew up in an all-white primary school in a white area, suburban, um, out in Loughton in Essex in the seventies, and mm. then I got my first flat of my own. Imagine being able to do that when you're 25, but it was 62 grand in in the early (laughs) 90s. And I moved into Stoke Newington in Hackney in London, London, and there's a a big black community. So suddenly it's a real racial melting pot. There's people from all over the world in that area, as as you probably know. What used to happen on the Sunday was that black families or or flats where black people were living would open their windows up, they'd get their stereos, they'd put the speakers on the windowsill, and everyone would be blasting their music out, and the street was a kind of a there was a corner, and there was another street that ran at a, an angle around the back. So it was a kind of triangle of gardens. And I'd sit out on my sort of back garden, look my back garden patch I had, and look at all these speakers blasting out, thinking this is this did not happen in Loughton. This is a really <laughs> <laughs> this is a totally different Sunday feeling. I remember uh, eating Battenberg cake while Songs of Praise was on the tea. <laughs> TV. <laughs> did that did that happen in uh, in your area where you grew up or is that really did i live in a very odd triangle of happening no you just i mean there's one thing i could say about black people we love noise <laughs> we love <laughs> loud music we love letting people know what we're listening to that's why 90 percent of the time if you see somebody playing outrageous music in a car chances are it's probably a black person it's it's it, it's my favourite when it's an old black person and they've got one of those, like, an old Saab convertible and their music is just loud reggae. Yeah, we just like a nice vibe. <laughs> we just really enjoy letting people... And especially, like, back in those days, people would have their blasters out. It's not like now where, you know, everybody could got their bloody music in their, their headphones or whatever. This was back when people would go around and they would, yeah, they would almost, like, Radio Rahim a bit of reggae. A nice, a nice street vibe, especially if you smoke weed. If you smoke weed as well, that's, like, ideal. Because, you know, nobody really wants to smoke weed out in, in inside. You want to go outside and just chill out and <laughs> listen to who, who's playing Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's wonderful memories. And I, how many siblings have you got? Have you got brothers? Yeah, yeah. Brothers? I've, got, uh, I've got older brother, one older brother. I've got three half brothers. And then, so in my family, me, my brother and my cousin, our birthdays all after each other. And we all, we're all, like I'm 32, my brother's 34, my cousin's uh, 31. So we were all really close. And then we had like, you know, uh, all my aunties and uncles. Or, and everybody lives in the same area. So we were all at my nan's house. And my school is directly behind my nan's house. So when I open my nan's back gate, I'm on school property. So oh, wow. I was, yeah, so I was, oh, mate. And I was still late for school. Can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> so really, everything's walking distance. All your friends, your school, all your relatives. Yeah, yeah, everything. And which everything part of the world, are, where are we now? This is in the black country? Is this Wolverhampton? That, whereabouts exactly? Yeah, it's not too far. So I lived in a place called Brandall. Uh, Brandall Albury, which is uh, the black country. So you got you got Wolverhampton, you got Dudley, you got Tipton, and you got like Brandall, 
at Albury, that area there. And there's a little, uh, there's one other little anecdote before we leave this subject about how your nan uh, paid the window cleaner. Yeah, so we, oh man, so we had a, a window cleaner, right? And, uh, you know, window cleaners, what a, what a strange job, like back then. They would literally just turn up, clean windows, demand money. <laughs> and you never, you, you, you never ask for them. I remember being in my house as a kid and just seeing ladders appear on the window. And I was like, are we being invaded? Like, what is happening here? And um, so this guy, he went to Jamaica, right? This white guy, he was a window cleaner. He went to Jamaica and then he came back and, he had like he, he turned like the side of his hair in a like a dread. Like he had like almost like um a little girl dread with beads. You could clearly see that he was like <laughs> sipping out of a coconut and like a Jamaican female local was like, Oh, I'll just do your hair for you. And um my nan didn't have any money to pay him for the windows and he just he, and I remember he went with his nose like he was sweating, went, Oh, can I can I just have some food instead? <laughs> And my nan just gave him like uh, like foil filled with like dumplings, and uh, gave him one of her plates of rice and peas. And she just she literally just paid him in food, just paid him in dumplings and uh, rice and chicken. And that was the area. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, those are great memories, there. Thanks so much for sharing all that. And um, oh. you've taken us back. You've taken us back to the uh, the one <laughs> thing that you can't get is you can't get the you know the real aromas when no. you're on audio, but I could, we've taken this there. Let's move on to a place not far, I guess, from where where you grew up. Uh, it's, this is the place that means the most to you, the place where uh, a, a formative moment in your life. Tell us about that. So in April 2014, I was really depressed. So I'd been doing comedy since I was about 18. Um, I was very depressed, sort of lost in my life, didn't really know... Um, I knew I, wa- I knew I wanted to be a comedian, but just things just weren't happening. Things just weren't working out for me. And you know, you know what that's like when you have a career you really want and it's not working out. You just get bitter and you get angry. And so my dad passed away when I was uh, eleven, and I'd been di- I went to high school and because my dad died in March uh, two thousand, I started sort of high school, big school in September two thousand. So I didn't really have much time to really process that, I'd say. It was just more like, okay, I'm in big school, focus, you know, puberty, friends, and whatever. And then I went to college. So I started uh, at college, hated college, dropped out of college twice, then started comedy. And then I just kind of fell in love with comedy and was focused on trying to make it as a comedian. And then I don't know what happened. I think maybe I just had all these feelings still uh, from when I was uh, 11, and being upset that things just weren't working out, my life wasn't going the way I planned, and having no real transferable skills, you know, I never went to uni or anything like that, I've always felt like I could just do comedy, and I got, I'd been dealing with bits of depression, and I got really suicidal, uh, basically I was on a, I was on a train uh, going to a gig in, uh, I think it was Telford at the time, and um, I just started crying on a train, um, just like tears flowing down my face. And I'm, I'm, one thing about me now is I'm not really much of a crier, but I just had uncontrollable tears um, on my face. And um, there was people on the train who were just, they were just like freaked out. Like they, like, and I don't blame them. I remember I was like, just a big dude, big massive beard, just tears flowing. Um, and I remember I wanted to like die. I was like, I want to, I don't want to live anymore. I, I can't deal with this. I want to die. And I got into, um, I just got off at the nearest stop, which was Wolverhampton, which is the place you go to to die, technically. And <laughs> I remember I went into the, the, there's a local Sainsbury's in Wolverhampton City Centre, and I grabbed, 
I, I got a load of pills. I just picked up a load of pills, like loads of painkillers, and I put them on the uh, mm-hmm. the table. And I, I, I said, uh, I, I said, oh, can I have that bottle of I think brandy or whatever? And uh, and I remember the person sort of looked at me and was just like, this what? And then I swear to God, they went, ah, oh, do you want the bigger bottle of brandy because you get two pounds off? And I was like, fine, I'll just take the bigger one. And then I went back home. I went. I got. I ended up going back home. And near me, a part of the school is a park. There's this park that I grew up in, uh, Brandall Park. Mm-hmm. And I sat on a bench, and I was just really, really sad and 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 down. And I had the alcohol and all these pills. And as I'm looking just on the floor, I mean, it's about 10 p.m. I'm at my lowest I can think of. My lowest since maybe my dad died. And I look on the floor and all I see is uh, a mobile number on the floor. And uh, above the mobile number, it said, call this number if you want a hug. Oh, why? So that was written in chalk or a pen or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was a was a, a, a pen. So uh, it was like a blue like floor and it was written in pen and you could see it. And what got me was... It was a park at night. There were some street lights, but it wasn't like the park was very well lit up because, you know, it's night. You're not really supposed to be in the park anyway. So I could just read this. And I had to double check because I, I honestly thought it said pug. <laughs> so I was like... <laughs> <laughs> I, I had no idea. Don't, don't kill yourself. Get a dog. Get, get a dog. <laughs> and I saw it. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to call the number because it's clearly... I think I think it's a prank normally it's like call this number for a blowjob or you hook you know that it's that sort of a park where there's graffiti written like everywhere all over the park by by kids from school and it, it's just it's just a moment for me that i'll never forget because i remember i i got up and i went home which was my mum's uh, at the time and i told my mum and me and my mum we don't really talk about feelings and stuff we're very sort of stunted in that way i think a lot of it's from my my dad's death and i told her what I was going to do and how I was feeling. And then she told it all my family and my, my family came up and everybody was, you know, sort of obviously worried about me and, and, and crying and whatnot. And um, I always spent a lot of time at that park just after school, my friends, it was just like a local little hang. And then that happened in April, 2014. And then September, I moved to London. I remember I told my mom in June that I was thinking about moving to London. And I just, my friend had a room just by chance. She just told me that she had a room and I said, oh, I'll take the spare room. And I just went. And I know that was, that was like a lot for my mum to deal with because one minute her son is, you know, was about to kill himself and he's just left to London all of a sudden. And it was the best decision. As obviously it's been the best decision of my life so far, but I, I honestly don't know what would have happened if I never went to that park at that time. Yeah. Just seeing that number and that, um, <laughs> Uh, uh, call this number if you want a hug it really just stuck out to me that like it's not you know it's not the time for that like you've got you've got more to do that's really that's fascinating how that worked on you psychologically it feels as though they often say don't they about suicide attempts it's a cliche to say it but it's a cry for help and it's so fantastic that you were able to actually get home and show you that you needed help or ask for help from all these people all around you that we just heard you describing in your family who all love you so much that you were able to get back to them. Yeah. It's a, it's a really amazing 
thing. Was that a feeling for you that you really hit the bottom there and, and you kind of almost needed to? Were you able to talk a bit more about your father dying and with your family members? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, we, we're st- I, there's still questions. I've still got lots of unanswered questions that I, I, I think I still need answering. Um, but my mm-hmm. family, especially with my uncles and aunties, they've always been quite honest. I think, I think with my family, nobody ever wants to like, because uh, they knew how much he, were, he meant to me and my brother. So I don't think they ever wanted any uh, to say anything that would probably make us feel, you know, change our opinion of him, even though... Uh, at this point, it's you know, it's it's too late. Like, it's too late, it, right? Yeah. Have you gone for any counselling or therapy or any of those? Uh, other no, but I I will um, because everyone tells me I, I should. Uh, but the only reason I haven't gone for any since I've been here is that everything's been going really well. I've been I've been much happier here. I've felt much better. Um, but I know that it could eventually creep back up again. It's always there that stuff. I mean, I lost my mother when I was six years old. It's always there and you never know. The funny thing about grief is you never know when it's going to come along. It doesn't come necessarily on any anniversaries or any expected times. It could just come along. But it's time. There's still, it's always there for you. That's why even if you're in lockdown, um, all these uh, online video chat uh, yeah, systems a lot of people are so that. good for that. Yeah, yeah. And also, I'm speaking to someone who's recently completed an MA course it's not too late for college too, Darren Harriet. It's all in front of you. You're a young man. There's so much for you. I'm telling you, I have I have considered college. I have been, I have been thinking Do about it. it. Yeah. Do it. Seriously. Yeah, no, I think that definitely because it feels like you got you got hit you got sideswiped in your time and in your education and but mm. for you to share that with us and to talk about that in that way I'm sure will help people who may be listening who have had those start moments. There are always people that there are numbers you can ring with Samaritans, of course. In fact, there's a friend of mine at school who's trained to be a Samaritans phone operator to be on the end of that line, which I thought was an amazing, yeah. amazing thing to do. Uh, this child line, of course, for for people who are younger, and and so don't necessarily rely on a phone number on the floor of the park, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, reach out reach out if you're feeling in that way but Darren thank you so much for, for sharing that with us no, and, my pleasure. Uh, uh, it's an amazing story let's let's go on now to uh, you You had this period in your life where you worked in security and uh, so you got to see some you got to see some shows didn't you this is a part of the podcast where we talk about the performance that you most remember so what's your choice here well, yeah, so uh, I worked as a bouncer for about eight years. Um, I used to work at, like, the O2 Arena. Um, uh, I've done, you know, Birmingham, NIA, the Barclay Card Arena. Then I worked the O2 Academies uh, in London, the Roundhouse. So you're there. Are you the guy with the bomber jacket, with the little something in your ear, talking to people? There you go. Something, something in your ear would imply that I had a radio uh, which meant I was important, but sometimes I was not important. <laughs> <laughs> You're just the guy leaning on the fence in front of the stage. Ah, oh, why are people getting on you for leaning? I would, I would get so annoyed when my boss would be like, can you stop leaning? Why? He's <laughs> probably on your toes in cases. And cases <laughs> so, yeah, I worked. Um, I mean, I, I, I've seen people ranging from Bruce Springsteen all the way to Drake. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's quite the um, you know, quite the array of uh, artists. But I'll tell you the performance 
that when people say what was my favorite performance, that really stuck out to me, and it stuck out with me, uh, stuck out to me uh, for two reasons. Um, first reason was I just thought it was going to be terrible. Right. I thought it was going to be terrible, and it was going to ruin the legacy of a legend. Uh, second reason I thought it was going to be terrible was that it was the most expensive show I think I'd ever worked at the um, Wembley Arena. Right, it's expensive Wembley. ticket prices or the or the stage set. Expensive ticket prices. Oh wow! Yes, yeah, so the ticket price it was. Uh, well, I'll tell you who it was. It was Queen and Adam Lambert. Oh, amazing. Yeah, Queen and Adam Lambert at the Wembley Arena. Now, I worked uh, at Wembley when I moved to London from 2014 to late 2017. So I think this might have been about 2016 when they were there. Now, ticket prices, stage left, were, if I remember correctly, it was six to eight hundred pounds. What? Because, dude, you've got to look at Brian May's hair, you know? You need For that, longer. you're expecting the ghost of Freddie Mercury to come <laughs> on for the encore. <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, yeah, so they had it all set out. So normally at a, a music gig, um, even at Wembley, you'd have obviously the stage, you'd have the pit, and then the crowd would all be standing. You'd have the, the floor seats, then you'd have the um, standing, and then you'd have the floor seats on the sides of Wembley uh, all up on the balconies, right? But because it was Queen, you'd have the everybody seated on the uh, sides, as you normally do, and at the bottom, you would have like separated uh, standing areas, which was the price, the money ones. So for all the normies who paid, I think it was about a hundred odd quid just for like a normal one, you would just be at the back of the standing. That's pretty common now, isn't it, with concerts having a special price to get you down the front? It, yeah, it might be now. Yeah, but when we, I remember they said, "Oh yeah, you've got people uh, to uh, stage left, uh, performers left, uh, eight hundred pounds." We were like. What do they get for that? And it's just like... Get just... Di dinner with Brian May at the Wednesday. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, what are we doing here? So I was already a bit like, oh, all right. And then you've got Adam Lambert. Oh, oh, Adam is Lambert is, is quite an uninspiring name. But fair to say, <laughs> I used to get... I remember what I got reviewed for my stand-up comedy when I first started, and the, and the reviewer said that Alan Davis was a really boring name, and I thought that was a bit of... <laughs> But anyway, he, he uh, he's quite a talented lad, right? Yeah, I think he was from uh, American Idol. Okay. Yeah, he, he came from American Idol, and I, I, I don't know what happened. I think Brian May, because you know that he is the real leading force of uh, a queen, he must have seen him, thought he was great. And I'll tell you this, it was the best gig I've ever seen... Uh, ever because I've just never been in a I mean I've done gigs where I've you know I've loved the artist so they've, they've had like a, a Drake on or someone like that and I, you know you know all the songs you're having a good time everyone's having a vibe but I've never been in a room where I could feel there was just like love in a room it just felt so like there was so much love everybody was just elated they also had little bits of they had like um, confetti cannons that fired out Adam Lambert came out and he had a difficult job because obviously you had uh, arseholes like me who's like, oh, Freddie Mercury ripoff. Uh, <laughs> but he nailed it. He was himself. So you were shouting out, it's a yeah. security guard. It's a security guard heckling. Yeah, I was just doing thumbs down from the pit area. <laughs> the Freddie Mercury ripoff. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's rubbish, eh? <laughs> but they've got quite the songbook, haven't they, Queen? I mean, really, it's a, it's a tale of a hit parade when they get going. It was just, yeah, it was just non-stop hits. You can tell a band's, like, you know, amazing, obviously Queen, when there's just, like, there's no, there's no opening acts. There's absolutely nothing. And because it was Queen, so normally... Uh, doors open, say, 7.30, opening act on, 8 o'clock, opening act finishes, half 8, quarter to 9, a couple of little bits of sound check, main band goes on about 9 to about half 10. Queen were just like, we don't need any of that, we're going to go on at about quarter past 9, just keep it black, keep it quiet, everybody in there. <laughs> and they just came out, and I'm telling you, they rocked the house. And normally with um, these sort of gigs, whenever they play songs that people know, lyrics, you know, they'll stop you know, strumming the guitar or whatever, or turn the volume down and everybody will sing. But I'm telling you, people were just, it was like a massive karaoke the entire night. It was yeah. so, the stage looked, you could tell that they'd put a lot of money into the, the stage and what everything looked like. I mean, And I, did anyone, uh, did anyone clap their hands for We Will Rock You? <laughs> um, <laughs> Alan, you'll be surprised, but uh, a couple of people did, yeah. There was a, there was a couple of uh, hands clapping, yeah. Come on, uh, join in if you know it. <laughs> I tell you, it I went to so a, a, a dinner where, and it was an, an awards do, and then afterwards there was a dinner, and then, then there was a kind of there was a music afterwards, and the band that came out to play was Super Tramp, and I had no interest yeah. in Super Tramp, and I've had very low expectations of even wanting to stay on after to watch the bands, and uh, and they came out and they started playing. And they were fantastic. Yeah. And there's something about having, I won't say low expectations, I was going to say no expectations. I don't think I could, to this day, I don't think I could name you a Supertramp song with confidence. But they did about an hour of the, these people are seriously good musicians. And it was a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic set. And I, for 20 years since, I've been saying to people, if you ever get the chance, you've got to see Supertramp live. <laughs> right? Isn't it? Isn't it amazing when you go in there and you just, you, you couldn't think anything less of what you're about to see. And then your mind is completely blown. And yeah, 20 years later, you're now like their biggest fan. Well, that's fantastic. What a great place to work for three years. Yeah, it was great. Well, that's fantastic memories. Now, look, now, let's move on now because it ties in quite well in a way because the next thing on our list here is your, is your music choice. We ask our guests to come up. It could be just a song, maybe an album, maybe an artist, someone who's been, who's been a really influential uh, in their in their life, for whom you chose them? Uh, yeah, my music choice was this was uh, this this whole album, uh, this artist was my my youth. Uh, it's Eminem. Uh-huh. Um, the album I've chosen is the Slim Shady LP. Excellent choice. The Slim Shady LP. If you listen to it, it it does it's so good. But it's so problematic. <laughs> I mean, if there was ever a time when somebody would say uh, that doesn't, uh, that didn't hold up, there's a lot of stuff in this that doesn't hold up. Well, it's a fascinating creation, right? Slim Shady is this kind of uh, Eminem's uh, Marshall Mathers alter ego, right? The one who says all the terribly dark things. <laughs> what a way he, to get out of it, <laughs> you know? So that so he's really does. That's exactly he creates him. Uh, there's one brilliant track where, where Marshall Mathis is getting bullied, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so like, yeah, songs like Brain Damage, As the World Turns, he's talking about 
uh, his school and being bullied. And he's, he likes to say that they're all like made up. But then, you, you know, I checked interviews and they go, oh, yeah, that's a real person. They really bullied me. And that really happened. And yeah, my mum was a drug addict. And I talk a lot about my mum being a drug addict. Oh, yeah. Uh, my, my daughter's mum wouldn't let me see her kids. So I wrote uh, Bonnie and Clyde where she's buried in the trunk of the car. And the whole song is me riding with my daughter to bury her body. And then he froze the body in the ocean. There's so much stuff yeah. in this that is just so crazy now. He's asking the ta- he's asking the daughter to help him, and there'll be no more stepdaddy. <laughs> yeah. What age were you listening to this? Because it's, I've got children now who are ten, nine, and five, and I think the the material is problematic. For for that for for kids, right? I, this has yeah. got to be eighteen certificate material. Yeah. What age were you when you were getting into the Slim Shady LP? Uh, Slim Shady LP, I was 11. 11, 12, 13 was um, my Slim Shady Eminem LP. Yeah, I think I first got it when I in two thousand, so I would have been twelve. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was uh, obsessed with it. Obsessed with it. I still, it's still one of my favorite albums of all time. I just love. The beats, the lyrics. I'd never heard a rapper who was also a clown. He clowns himself. There's so many other sound effects. There's so many cartoon noises in it. It's not just straight rapping. There's so much more going on. It goes, it, it pushes hard on the line, doesn't it? But Eminem, he talks, also talks about being white and how he had, it's difficult to be accepted as a rapper. But he was. And, yeah. and Dre, of course, his endorsement helped him with that. But he is a fan, incredibly talented. Some of it is like a very dark comedy album really yeah he says that it's almost like um a horrorcore kind of rap where it's you know every song has something to do with like a come or killing or, or or you know race or sex he actually said that he, he he was really angry at women a lot of um for a lot of that mainly his um daughter's mom even the song lyrics now you know just don't give a fuck. Come on, everybody. There's a song called Come On Everybody. And guess how he spelled come? Like, <laughs> you don't get, you, you just don't get this now. And, and, and I know now that Eminem is kind of this, uh, he's, he's definitely a reformed guy. I mean, this was, what, 21 years ago. This is the guy in his 20s making this kind of music who was, you know, uh, trailer park guy really poor mum was a pill addict or whatever bullied at school so he just had all this anger and he realized that the only way he was going to be respected in rap was he knew he was a good rapper because he was a battle rapper he knew that the one thing he can't do is try and be a gangster because no one's going to take him seriously so i'll take the mic out of myself i'll reverse it take the mic out of myself and my life and he does it beautifully and is there something about um being really feeling alone there's a real this often the character is just a lonely desperate angry yeah. embittered and somebody with no power no agency no status in life family broken relationship broken friends nowhere this point of feelings of real isolation which i'm sure appears one of the reasons why he appeals to or appealed to certainly in those days to teenagers and young kids Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. One thing we, we can definitely say about uh, Slim Shady on this album is he's definitely an incel. Yes. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, I think that's certainly true. I th- it's, it's, there's, there's one bit that I really noticed, you know, when I was in my 20s, I used to love the Bare Naked Ladies and I had their album, Gordon. 
and mm. I used to listen to them all the time. And they have this song called If I Had a Million Dollars. And if I had a million dollars, I'd buy a fur coat, but not a real fur coat. That's cruel. And it's a kind of almost childlike wistfulness yeah. about what you would do if you had money. Oh, I'd buy hot dogs and, and bacon and ketchup and all that. And uh, there's this song on this album where he says, if I had a million bucks, I'd still be robbing trucks or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> if I had a million dollars, I would get the biggest ass I could have so the whole world could kiss me on the ass or something like that. But don't yeah. really... Uh, there is, he's saying there is no coming back from this position that I'm in. There's no, this is how I'm going to feel for life. The certainty of that. And also, I guess there's a feeling too with Slim Shady, he's not expecting life to go on that long. No, I don't think he expected to have, uh, I mean, he talks about it as well, uh, that he doesn't expect to have much of a career after some of the stuff that he says. Uh, I mean, everything you can think of, he went at. What was going through his mind (laughs) at that time? to come up with all of this, and it's one of his most critically acclaimed albums. And was there already, do you think, a feeling from him that it was a bit of a backlash against some of the success he was having, or was that too, reading too much? No, yeah, so he always felt he always felt like the outsider. He always felt like he wasn't given uh, the respect. You know, because when he was uh, doing My Name Is, if you think about the old Slim, Slim Shady around that, he was the guy with, he had the blonde hair. He was the blonde-haired guy, the skinny little white kid who was rapping. So he always felt like he was a complete outsider and had to do something completely different. Dr. Dre, who uh, produced uh, all the pretty much all the songs on the album, he was being told by his own people not to sign Eminem because he will ruin your career. Don't sign Eminem, he will ruin your career. And uh, obviously Dr. Dre did, and it's hugely successful. But his next album, the Marshall Mathers LP, is just as good. I was struggling between this one or Slim Shady LP. It's the exact same thing again. He calls it the Marshall Mathers LP, but it's Slim Shady. <laughs> Eminem was just, for me, he was just the man. He was just this, he had amazing lyrics. He brought cartoons into rapping. He would take the mick out of himself. Even now, you're hard done to find a rapper who's willing to joke about himself. I can't imagine rappers joking about the sort of stuff that he would joke about and say, that's what I am. It's just not what happens. And I think he really turned it completely on it, on its head with his lyrics and, uh, of course, his look. Yeah, completely. And he's uh, he, he's someone who started a lot of fights in the music business too, didn't he? <laughs> Attacked a lot of people, fell out with a lot of people, and then famously uh, performed with Elton John, didn't he? I mean, he was when he was regarded as a homophobe. It's a fascinating character. In fairness, though, Eminem really picked his targets. Oh, Moby, Britney Spears. Oh, oh no. The guy from Limbiscuit. Whoa, take it easy there. <laughs> he really knew who to pick on. And uh, the other thing about him, of course, is that a fantastic film um, about his early life and rap battles and trying to start out. Man, did we love Eight Mile and Eight Mile. It's a, that is a really an excellent film, even if you're not interested in rap music, right? Yeah, it's just such a good, good film. Eminem could really act. Um, I remember we were so influenced, it, uh, influenced by it at school. We did rap battles. We did our own, like, eight-mile rap battles at, in school, which uh, the teachers ended up banning by sending, like, a letter to our parents because it was just getting too much of a crowd. But, yeah. Oh, we, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Because everybody, because it just looked like a fight from a distance. You would think it was a fight because it was just loads of kids around in a circle on the um, on the school field. But, yeah, it's such a good film. It's a fantastic film. And he is a, a, a brilliant artist for all the controversy, or maybe partly because of the controversy. Yeah, it um, definitely helped. 
Yeah, I mean, he was he was turning up to awards with like a ski mask and a a, a chainsaw and stuff. <laughs> I mean, he, he was. I mean, he he knew what he was doing, did I, Eminem? He knew what he was doing. Well, it's a great choice again. Thank you, Darren. Um, we're going on now to uh, an important memory in your life, an, an event that means something to you. We've been through your film, your book choice, your favourite food, the place, and performance, and music, and now we're. We're finishing off now with uh, this memory of yours of all the things that you could think of is the one that you've really sticks out and you've chosen. Tell, tell us what you what it is. Okay, so it's kind of um, two that I've just put into one. So um, mm. my dad took me, my brother, and my cousins. He took us to a place called Sega World. Uh-huh. Um, in the, it was in the nineties in uh, Birmingham, and it's one of those memories that. I don't remember much about it because I know I was young. Is this a kind of an arcade or a computer game? Yeah, yeah, like an arcade. Yeah, like a big arcade where, you you know, you sort of play Sonic and all those sort of things. And I I always remember my dad being there and having these giant bags filled with pounds. They were just filled with money. And when you're a kid and you love arcades and you've got unlimited pound coins for arcades, (laughs) I can't, it's better than sex. I can't even, <laughs> I just know that we were just playing shooting games and it was just, um, uh, just, just honestly, just an amazing, amazing time. So you would have been what, nine or 10 years old or something like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I must have been about nine or 10 years old because I never got to see my dad that much. And I had no idea why. I think when you're a young uh, a kid, I guess, it's kind of easy to sort of lie to them and just keep them, you know, not let them know exactly what's going on. Obviously, you've done that with your kids. You don't let them know certain things. Um, I've been in arcades and told them I haven't got any pound coins. That's certainly a problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so it must have been around, I think it was around uh, Christmassy time, um, about 99. I was at my nan's house and the phone rang. Upstairs in the spare room, the phone rang answer the phone and it was my dad and I was over the moon to hear from my dad because I I only ever heard from him kind of intermittently I never got to see him that much I love my dad want to see my dad that's all I wanted and he's on the phone and we're talking and I'm you know really happy and I'm very sort of you know saying like you know dad when am I going to see you uh uh, you know I'm playing football you gotta come watch me and my dad was like, yeah, 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 I will. Don't worry, I'll watch you. Is your brother there? And my brother wasn't there. And it was like, well, just look after your mom and be a good person. Now, I had no idea at the time uh, that uh, th- there was like a, a, a finality about everything he was saying. Um, it was all very much like, you know, be good, make sure you work hard and you study, look after your mom, look after your brother, all of that sort of stuff. And I'm like, you know, yeah, 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 don't worry, dad. Yeah, 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 what am I going to see you do that? And we spoke, and um, I remember I put the phone down. And uh, back in the day, house phones, you could press 1471, and you could, yeah. like, trace the number. So I did that, and I remember that the, it, the phone said, unable to trace this call. And that was something I'd never heard before. Like, normally it's withheld or whatever, but it's unable to trace this call. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. So took my 11-year-old self, went downstairs uh, to my nan. And my nan had no idea I'd been speaking to my dad. And I said to my nan on the phone, I said, nan. Is your nan your dad's mum or your mum's mum? My mum's mum. Yeah, my mum's mum, yeah. So I said to my nan, I said, nan, uh, what does it mean when somebody phones and then you try and trace the number 
and it says uh, unable to trace this call. And my nan, without realising, uh, just went, oh, I don't know, maybe they're calling from, I don't know, prison? And in my head, I went, oh, okay. Oh, wow. And then right. it clicked to me. That was the first time I, I knew that my dad was in prison. Um, and then three months later, uh, in March, uh, my dad, I, we were told that my dad had killed himself. He'd committed suicide. And obviously, that was is devastating, still devastating to this day. But um, I'll always remember that phone call that we had where, because I, I, I remember how I felt. I remember what was said. Uh, the saddest part about it is for me is that I can't remember my dad's voice. That's gone. I have no mm-hmm. idea what my dad's voice sounds like anymore. Um, but I'll always remember that moment on the phone. And then as I've gotten older, uh, you know, you hear more and more and you find out more and more. My dad was basically, he was kind of in and out of prison. So the main reason why I didn't see him that much was that he was doing a few months in prison for various sort of drug related things. Um, mm-hmm. And then now um, there's still lots more sort of questions that I have to do with it. I'm not overly close with my dad's family. Um, I think it was just one of those things where my dad was like the oldest of, uh, of um, two. It, it just broke down the family, uh, his side of the family. They were just completely destroyed by him doing that. Um, they're still, I think on their side as well, they still think it was like a murder. I which I don't believe that. He was in prison and it took his own life. Yeah, they don't believe that he was in prison and took his own life. They believe that he was they believe that somebody took his life in prison. And I mm-hmm. I I um I saw the um order of service for my dad that I hadn't seen for years, about two years ago. And on the back they've got, you know, little nice things said by family. You know, me and my brother have put, you know, oh, dad, we miss you and all that sort of stuff. My auntie, his mum. And then there's there's my dad's other kid who has put down, you know, there's a few, don't worry, we will find out who did this to you. And there's other people who have put stuff like, you know, we will find out the, the truth about this. And so they still have that sort of uh, attitudes um, right, about it. Yeah. Even to this yeah. day, they, they still they still believe that. And that's, that's fine, that's up to them. But I'll always remember that call. And I've always felt really sort of privileged to have that. Um, from my dad. Did it feel like a goodbye call, do you think? Or is that just something that, with hindsight, you've put onto it? Maybe. I also think, yeah, maybe, because, I do. you know, you will say to a to a, a kid, you know, be good, you know, study hard. I just feel like the fact that he told me to study and look after my mum and study hard and all that sort of stuff. If it was, I feel like, as an 11-year-old, yeah, you'd probably say that, but... yeah. I don't feel like you would have. I feel like if you if you knew he was going to see me again, he probably would have just been told me to behave. Well, there's quite a gap between that call and then subsequently his death. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, they 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 sometimes say with those things in prison, it you, you normally try and work out how to. It's normally not that much of a spur of the moment thing. So I was told it's more just can you get what you need to do it? Right. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, he, he he yeah he hung himself with uh, shoelaces um, in the prison, and um, yeah, it's still obviously it's still. My God, yeah. Darren, that's so shocking. But you know, like I said, I, I about f- 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 four or five months later, I was at high school, and I mean, thank yeah. God for high school. That really that really took a load off because you just you're just busy. I'm busy trying to make new friends, you know. Uh, you know, uh, fancying girls and do I like drama now? Do I like football? You know, so it, it kept me kind of busy. And then that was when 
I got really depressed when I started college because it was like, oh, I'm just a, a guy who doesn't really know what he wants to do. And, oh, oh, I wish my dad was around. Oh, and then found comedy. And then comedy kept me, has kept me busy. Oh, well, that's such a terribly sad story. Thank you for sharing that with us, Darren. Oh, yeah, no worries. That's your final uh, seven pillar. And um, the thing, throughout our whole conversation, which I've greatly enjoyed, it's this feeling I've had for you since I first met you of your of a real openness and honesty and an openness uh, about you that seems to be your principal characteristic. Sometimes I fear for you that it's something that, that makes you almost vulnerable and um, there's a rawness there, but it's the thing that makes you such a great human being and um, and someone that's great to spend time with and talking to so oh thank you man that really means a lot thank you for all your time darren and, and thank you so much oh thank you it's been great always a pleasure spending time with you alan thanks again buddy cheers darren